Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Moderna has announced it has officially begun testing its vaccine on children under the age of 12 in a trial that's going to take place in both Canada and the U.S. Dr. Brian Leachy joins us with all those details. Mental health has been a major concern across the world as we pass the one-year anniversary of this pandemic. How are the mental health practitioners taking care of their own mental health during this pandemic? We'll talk about that as well. And is it time to drop the queen as Canada's head of state? Controversy rages about it, and we're going to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get back to the vaccine situation here because we're getting new information about this almost every day. And, and we seem to be moving around, if, uh, if I could use the phrase that they're using in the States, at warp speed to try to get these uh, vaccines out to people. Uh, drug manufacturer Moderna has now announced that it has officially begun testing its vaccine on children under the age of 12 in a trial that will take place in both the U.S. and Canada. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the details. In all, more than 6,700 children will be involved in this trial, with some as young as six months old. According to the drug maker, it'll be a two-phase trial. In part one, two doses of 25, 50, or 100 micrograms may be given to kids six months to one year. Kids 2 to 11 may get two doses from two dosage levels of 50 to 100 micrograms. In part two, more children will be involved and given doses based on the results from part one or a placebo. All will be followed for a year after their second dose to check for efficacy and antibody levels. Some doctors have questioned going so young in children, while others point to severe respiratory illnesses that arose in some younger victims of COVID-19. Pfizer-BioNTech has plans to test younger people, while Johnson & Johnson intends to do trials on infants, including newborns, in the near future. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. So, What is the efficacy of this and exactly why are we doing it in in, in this particular fashion? I want to talk about some of the other vaccine situations as well. And to that end, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Brian D. Litchie, who is an associate professor in pathology and molecular medicine with the McMaster Immunology Research Center. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on. As, as, as we've had discussions over the last year, I guess now, since the first wave of the pandemic, uh, there's been a debate as to whether or not uh, children are going to be uh, adversely affected by COVID, whether they're carriers, whether it can be severe. Uh, some are suggesting that they should be the last in line to get the vaccination. Uh, how do you feel about the plan as it's rolling out now? Well, it makes sense to start testing it uh, in, in young people and children and even infants because it takes a while to get through all of that safety and then efficacy testing as they was just described in that that news clip and so if we start doing the testing now uh, by the time all those people are become eligible uh, for vaccination once older people at higher risk have been vaccinated we'll know whether or not um, the existing vaccines are suitable so this program is rolling out and, and i guess we need to remind our listeners just the fact that they're starting this uh, this program and, and the testing on this uh, doesn't mean that uh, that we're ready for uh, inoculations with children anytime soon. This could take a while, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, everything's moved quicker than would be typical for uh, any vaccine development because of the pandemic situation. But yeah, it'll take a little while. They'll, they're going to, um, as was described, escalate the dose is traditional. you got to figure out in a new population what is, you know, an appropriate dose that's safe but but is useful is is going to give children a protective immunity for for a long enough period of time and then you need to once you found your dose you need to give that dose uh to that population enough people young people to then follow them and see if it's of any value so if you think that's true it's going to take more than six months probably 
to figure out how to vaccinate children. But in six months, the hope is that uh, we'll be ready to vaccinate children. Uh, the simple solution here, I, and I guess maybe I wanted to get some clarity from you on this. Uh, when we're talking about children, small people, in, in fact, uh, is it just a reduced dosage of what they've already developed, or do they have to tinker a little bit with the formula? Uh, typically, it would you would simply change the dose, and typically you would adjust it by body weight uh, for most things. Uh, vaccines are a little bit different than, than um, you know, a lot of the regular drugs that would be used to treat, you know, what whatever. Um, in that it depends on how reactive the recipient's immune response is to the vaccine. And, and that varies with age. So older people um, tend to have um, sort of weaker immune responses. And so we probably have been needing to overdose a lot of the people who've been receiving vaccines. And so you can't just walk that back to, you know, somebody who's 20 pounds and, and do the math and know what the dose should be. You have to actually try a lower dose than you would predict and then work your way up to the appropriate dose. I know we're learning more about this every day, and I guess we're learning a lot more about the vaccine every day too since it's relatively new as well. It's only a few months since we've actually developed this, let alone started to, to, to disseminate it among the populations. Uh, but is there a concern about, uh, the, obviously, the size of the individual, like you say, from a child to an adult? But as you know, there was a concern about a week or so ago with the AstraZeneca vaccine with people plus 65. Uh, does does demographic come into this? As, uh, I know the body changes as it gets older, uh, but is there a concern? about the impact that the dosage and the vaccine might have on whatever group that is? Uh, to some degree, but uh, the truth is, uh, you know, the trials, uh, for obvious reasons, were, were started um, on healthy individuals who were volunteers, right? But then mm-hmm. um, there was a need to vaccinate those people most at risk. Uh, and in many cases, those are people who already have underlying um health concerns and it makes it uh, challenging for a vaccine developer to do that because that's when things may crop up um you know we've heard about blood clots but we're dealing with a population that is already prone to that and if you vaccinate like astrazeneca has 17 million people among 17 million people that you follow for several months you're going to see their comorbidities and other issues pop up and then you have to wonder whether it has anything to do with the vaccine so we're already in the midst of doing the most challenging population Um, children will be probably much easier once they figure out the dose because they will on average be much healthier let me ask you about that because there's a lot of controversy swirling on about that too about the the blood clotting and it's it's serious stuff we don't mind to belittle this i mean but uh, i i heard dr henry from uh, british columbia the other day talking about this and she tried to put it in context uh she suggested look at as you mentioned 17 million people have already received the vaccine seven of them have shown up with with this concern about the the blood clotting she said if you were to take a a sample size of 17 million people anywhere you'd probably get seven or more people with blood clots it it happens i mean it's something that that, Mm -hmm. that doctors deal with on a pretty regular basis is that is that a fair assessment i think it is and um that's simply basing it on the statistical likelihood that anything will crop up in the um let's say one month following um receiving the vaccine so you could probably do the same thing for pick your standard you know dental procedure in that population if you took 17 million people and filled two cavities and then watched them for a month, you would see 
all sorts of things happen. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. It's a number um, thing. So, of course, you know, people are rightfully being very cautious. And then those places where they've seen something, and there's there's some wondering about whether it has to do with a particular batch of the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, which seems unlikely. Um, but to be careful uh, in places where they've had that, that batch, and it's not Canada, um, they're stopping things to look very closely at the medical records of the that that handful of people just to see if there's any reason to think that it wasn't you know just a uh, a coincidence uh and we'll soon find out uh the results of those investigations yeah just to remind our listeners uh, the astrazeneca vaccine that's here in canada i guess was actually produced in india uh obviously in europe it was the european stuff but and they said there's some minor variations to it doctor i mean is the vaccine the vaccine or or are there variations on just like there are variations on the virus itself uh, the vaccines will be way more consistent. Um, it's a very challenging thing to do to produce, you know, millions of doses of a vaccine. Mm-hmm. But um, that industry has existed for a very long time. And um, particularly companies like Pfizer and AstraZeneca, these, these big pharmas, they have spent billions of dollars um, at the behest of regulatory bodies to figure out how to best make sure that every dose is the same no matter what. And a lot goes into that in terms of how do you even, you know, ensure that. So there's an enormous amount of testing that is um, devoted to um, ensuring that the biomanufacturing that is required to generate these vaccines is as consistent as humanly possible. But there are variations, or are there variations between French AstraZeneca, Johnson and Johnson, and things of that nature? There are differences between the different vaccines. Okay. But for a given vaccine um, that one company is developing, um, they have to make sure that every dose is as, as similar as, like I said, humanly possible, so that they know that they're giving the correct dose uh, to every individual. Um, and that the vaccine was manufactured in exactly the same way each time. But yeah, there's differences between each of their technologies. So the Moderna vaccine is somewhat different than the Pfizer vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine are, are even more different. Um, but within um, one technology, there should be uh, extreme uh, similarities. The purpose of the vaccine itself, I, just so our listeners get an understanding of what this is, uh, it, it, it's basically giving us anti, to develop antibodies, right, to be able to fight this off. In fact, if we're, and we're exposed to this at some point. Exactly. So they're all um, designed to um, direct our immune system to make uh, the surface protein. It's called spike. Uh, that's that's. Um, prominently displayed on the virus uh, to cause our immune system to make some of that protein, recognize it as foreign, and respond to it so that we have an immune response against the virus uh, before we're ever exposed to it. And and this is not a new approach to this. I'm told that this is uh, how vaccines have been developed or the work for vaccines have been developed with with other coronaviruses as well. So it was borrowing a page from work that had been going on for some time, I'm told. 
yeah, other infectious diseases and um, you know cancer uh, therapies. So there's a lot of effort being put into developing uh, cancer vaccines as well by these companies and others. And so all of that knowledge um, and and historical uh, experience was put together to quickly come up with a new vaccine for a new threat. There's so much talk about brand names, if I could use that phrase, you know, the J&J, the Moderna, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as, as we go down the road, and hopefully, you know, everybody gets their second injection and everything is fine and the virus is under control, and we may well, as, as some folks have told us, doctor, uh, be going for annual boosters. I guess that's yet to be determined. Uh, but it, what about the brand names? Are they also going to stay in the market, or is one, do you think, is going to be a preferred choice with, uh, with the medical field? Well, that'll probably come down to to economics, basically. So, um, um, amongst these, so if you think of other vaccines, um, like the flu vaccine, the seasonal flu vaccine, you know, that's a great comparator insofar as uh, new ones are made every year or so, mm-hmm. uh, and people are encouraged, especially if, you know, they're at risk from a, an, an influenza infection, <clears throat> to go and get their, their flu shot. They're only made by a handful of companies because there's only so much room in the market place for you know manufacturers, and different companies have focus on different things. And so, some pharmaceutical companies focus on oncology, and others focus on you know cardiovascular disease, and and some focus on vaccines. And right now, everyone's focused on vaccine. But I suspect that once you know things return to normal, thank heavens. Uh, the ones that traditionally focus on vaccines will continue to make a vaccine or a new booster or whatever is needed um, and that there's um, a market for, and they'll continue to make that. And the others will probably go back to their usual business, so to speak. It's so insightful. I'm glad you could join us. One other question, though, because I, I'm, I get emails every time we talk about this sort of thing. There are some people that are not going to get the vaccine simply because they have an allergic reaction to maybe one of the ingredients. That there's a concern about that. Uh, same thing happened with the flu vaccine years ago. I think there was egg or something in, in the vaccine. And so people that had that allergy couldn't get the flu shot. They fixed that. In other words, they, they, they said, OK, we can work on that. And there's a variation on the vaccine. Do you anticipate that happening with this one as well? Uh, so the technology that was switched, that was shifted to to solve the flu, um, uh, the egg allergy and, and influenza vaccines, is the technology that's generally being used here. So um, especially the mRNA vaccines, these are new technologies. Uh, the there aren't really any ingredients in in those vaccines that um, people would know they have a pre-existing allergy to. There have been, because they're quite strong vaccines, some, um, let's say, overreactions by people's immune system to it, like an allergic reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, what may happen is that uh, uh, they'll learn to dose those people differently. Okay. Uh, and we may find that one or more of these different vaccines that are available is better suited to certain populations. And, and that's something that's being learned as, as we go along because everything's being done on the fly here. But, but you know, mostly like like we discussed with you know, getting this into the pediatric population, um, the best way to do it is to proceed cautiously and start with a low dose and figure out the dose that is appropriate, and then use that for that population. And right now we're we're 
picking populations based on age. Mm-hmm. But we might be able to refine things better in the future once we know more. Uh, and just to remind our listeners, too, uh, for those that haven't had the shot yet, uh, that's why they ask you to wait, uh, well, 15 to 20 minutes or so uh, after you get your, your shot uh, to make sure that everything's okay and there is no immediate reaction. That That's all part of the process, I guess. Yeah, and it's t- that would be true of any vaccine. Typically, uh, you get your injection and then you are asked to hang around for a little bit to make sure that um, you're not having a, 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 an unlikely reaction. And then you're fine to go on your way. Uh, Doctor, so insightful. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Like I say, there's so many questions uh, that pop into our heads as this program rolls out and new vaccines come on the market. It's always great to uh, be able to tap into your expertise for this. Thanks again for the time today. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Dr. Brian D. Litchie, of course, from McMaster University, uh, the Department of Molecular Medicine. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some of the side effects of uh, the the pandemic and of course the virus itself of course are well being felt by an awful lot of canadians one of those of course are stress and mental health problems and it's been an ongoing problem uh but i think we need to spend a little bit of time talking about just how impactful this has been Uh, monica green is with the canadian counseling and psychotherapy association and she says that practitioners in the field are navigating the challenge of guiding clients through the uncertainty of the pandemic while living through it themselves Definitely counselors and psychotherapists are at risk for burnout and for compassion fatigue, but also the degree of exposure to pain and suffering is really also able to take a toll. Well, how problematic is it? Uh, well, I would direct you to the webpage, the Global News webpage, uh, it's an article called A Year in the Pandemic, Mental Health Workers Facing Burnout and Soaring Demands. Uh, Amanda Conley from Global News uh, wrote the piece, and she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Amanda, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could be with us. Happy St. Patty's Day to you. Happy St. Patrick's Day! Yeah, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> From a Kelly to a Conley, okay, that's uh, that's great. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this impact. I, I got to tell you, I, I read this and I saw the report on Global National last night. Uh, the, the impact this has, and the numbers that we're having here are, are really really incredible, and I think worthy of, of discussion here because we talked about stress levels, etc. I think there's a stat a week or two ago from uh, the Children's Helpline. They've had like a five-fold increase in the number of calls to the helpline, and that's just the Children's Helpline. Uh, adults, of course, are feeling the same sorts of stresses uh and it's having an impact on the people who are supposed to help those people absolutely and this is one of the really striking things to see from uh from working on this report over the past month is that of course we hear as you mentioned over and over again the 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 effects of the pandemic on canadians mental health the stress the uncertainty the anxiety all of it and then you think about the people that so many canadians are turning to to kind of navigate through this and get them through it and of course i think it's entirely reasonable that you're hearing from them as well that they're they're also feeling a lot of these effects they're feeling the burnout, like so many Canadians, from being overworked, from switching to virtual um, virtual work as well, and really that compassion fatigue that the uh, the clip that you played earlier was mentioning—they're exposed really on the front lines here to this kind of echo pandemic that so many people are going through, and really absorbing all of that every day. Well, you talked to Monica Green and a number of other people in the industry. What are they telling you? Yeah, so they're certainly saying that what they're seeing so far is really a soaring demand. You mentioned the five-fold increase as well. That was a number cited to me by some of the folks that I spoke to, just really an incredible uh, increase in the demand for help, whether it be through counseling, through therapy, through um, people going to psychiatrists, psychologists, all of them really across the board are are reporting uh, increases with clients. But of course, there's the challenge too that a lot of Canadians do not have access to the support. A lot of people have lost their jobs. They've lost their insurance, and with that often comes access to counseling and support through their employee uh, employer insurance plan as well. 
So you're seeing a lot of the therapists and the people who are working here in mental health really grappling with how do we help people and continue helping people, for example, if they've lost their insurance, if they can't afford to pay anymore, um, before it really gets to that crisis level and they end up in the emergency room. You know, we, we've talked about that, you know, wait times for instance, when it comes to surgery and stuff like that. But wait times for mental health uh, help is, is problematic too, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, we, we've seen, of course, a number of, of concerning stats over recent years. Uh, one of them that jumped out to me so far when I was working on this piece is that there's roughly 1.6 million Canadians who have an unmet mental health care need. And that was before the pandemic. So you start to look at these numbers here and you, you try and, and visualize all of the extra stress and the uncertainty caused by the pandemic on top of the people who were already not able to get the help that they need and the support that they need before all of this really came into our lives. And so it's certainly been referred to, I've heard, you know, echo pandemic, shadow pandemic. And I think that we're, we're certainly seeing that growing realization that this really is an issue that is not going away. There is a very strong need and a clear need across the board in Canada for more mental health care supports and more access as well for, for so many Canadians. When we start talking about mental health issues, and I know you've done extensive research on this uh, for the piece, Amanda, uh, I mean, even pre-pandemic, I mean, there was stress in our lives in, in various forms, and we handled it in various ways, and sometimes it's it's bearable, sometimes it's almost negligible, other times it's, it's burdensome and overwhelming. Uh, but the increase in the number of people that said, you know what, my life is worse now, and I'm more stressed out during the pandemic. The, you, were, you mentioned a statistic there about uh, the, the percentage of Canadians that are just saying, you know what, I'm worse off now because of this. Yeah, we've certainly seen some, some really troubling surveys and, and data coming out over the past couple of months. Of course, when the pandemic first began, there were, there were some initial studies saying there, there were, there were pro, uh, troubling signs, problematic signs, that this would, this would cause a lot of problems for people's mental health. We have seen, as recently as December, um, a study from the Canadian Mental Health Association that found that 40% of Canadians were saying their mental health was worse than in March 2020, but also that suicidal thinking was up really sharply. That, that survey was finding that 1 in 10 Canadians, or roughly 10%, of course, had reported recent thoughts or feelings of suicide. And just for context, that's up from 6% in the spring and just 2.5% who were saying the same thing pre-pandemic. So again, you're seeing um, all of these factors as well amplified in people who already had mental health conditions who identify as LGBTQ2 or Indigenous or uh, have a disability or are between the ages two of 24 and 35. There's that kind of key bracket that has seen so much disruption in their life from graduations and milestones and work opportunities as well that this is really just hitting very hard. That number jumped out at me when I was reading your report about this, that progressive scale that you've just talked about, 2.5% uh, uh, considering suicide pre-pandemic. It went up to 6% about a year or so ago, and now it's over, uh, well, 10%, as you say. Uh, this is We're reaching a crisis situation here, aren't we, if we're not already in it? Absolutely. I mean, that, that really was a lot of the messaging that I was hearing from, from the experts and the mental health workers I spoke to here is that this is, you know, we're looking, we've been, I think we've been approaching this kind of as an acute event, they were saying, since the start of the pandemic. And it's not, of course, acute anymore. This is a long-term medium, like it, it is a much more serious situation than people had thought at the outset of the pandemic, because we're dealing with not only the immediate effects of this, but the really kind of longer term repercussions. And of course, people are dealing with you here described as um, as grief and, and kind of a collective trauma in a way, this disruption to the world and the lives that everyone knew. And the question, of course, becomes, as we begin to see vaccines, the kind of glimmers of hope and reopening, how do you deal with those lingering effects that this is going to have on people's mental health because of the upheaval of the past year? 
that won't just go away. Uh, it was one of the sentiments we heard a lot throughout this process. And there's a really pressing need to make sure that we are equipped to deal with that as we begin to look forward to the future here. Well, because I guess just anecdotally from discussions I've had, I mean, if, if you're having mental health issues, the last thing they're going to, somebody's going to say is don't go around people, you know, isolate yourself, and which is what we're doing because of the pandemic. So the, the very protocol that we're supposed to be following now to, to try to, to bend the curve or break the curve for the pandemic uh, is really probably exacerbating any mental stress that people are under. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of one of the one of the really tricky dichotomies here, of course, is that, you know, as you're mentioning, you, you can't a lot of the things that people would normally do to cope with their mental health, to to deal with anxiety and stress and things like that. You think of exercise, you think of, um, you know, commiserating with your colleagues over drinks or shared activities or things like that. You think of seeing family and friends. And those are things that, of course, we can't do right now with the pandemic. They're not safe to do right now and they won't be safe for quite a while long quite a while longer likely and so that's one of the challenges that mental health workers are really grappling with is how do you uh, guide people through this and support them when all of those normal coping mechanisms that they're used to are really not um, not feasible of course you're seeing a lot of switch to virtual uh, virtual zoom calls and, and zoom drinks and things like that um, but a lot of the healthcare, the mental health care is also being done virtually and that's of course leading to questions about how do you make sure that people are for example, safe to receive that service? Are they somewhere where they can have a, a private conversation and they're not, uh, for example, if they are living at home with an abuser or things like that, that they're able to get out and have that privacy to receive the care that they need? And so you're looking again at all of these things that come into play when you're talking about how to deliver this support and this help. Uh, and it's certainly something that even mental health care workers themselves are coping with. I spoke with some who were saying, you know, virtual uh, peer support groups have been really important, taking up new kinds of exercise that they can do on their own have been really important for them. And also just really taking those moments during the day to ground yourself, to find that time for, you know, we talk about self-care and it can sound a little bit cliche sometimes, but just um, I spoke with one psychologist who was saying just holding his son, walking around and holding his infant, uh, his infant son was a moment to really center himself and find that peace to be able to provide that support to people who still need him. Well, because we've seen pictures over the last year, uh, you know, since we went into the first wave of this pandemic, of, of ICU workers, for instance, in the hospitals all around the world, uh, and you can just see the exhaustion in their faces and, and the stress that's because of what they're dealing with. I mean, they're seeing death, they're seeing people that are suffering, they're seeing families that are being separated, you can't be with your loved ones. We know all those stress factors, and sadly, I mean, some doctors and nurses actually took their own lives because they just couldn't seem to, to cope with the stress anymore, and that's tragic. Uh, when you get to the those people that are supposed to help the people that are under stress like this, of course, now their caseloads are, are are probably doubled or tripled, I guess, from what they used to be. And your your point's well taken, Amanda. They can't do it the way they usually do it because of, of you know, they can't have that face-to-face anymore with that. So who do they turn to? I mean, do they turn to themselves? I mean, I, the self-isolation, I get it. But I know and every now and then, like he's mentioned, the one guy that just wanted to hold his son, you need to be grounded and kind of get away from that and, and remind yourself of your own reality. But, boy, uh, if you need somebody to talk to that's going to be difficult for these people because first of all finding the time to do it and and trying to articulate that because you you feel as if i'm doing that for myself i'm not helping somebody else and then that way guilt can fall in there's so many things going on here yeah absolutely and of course one of the challenges there too is if if, if you work in this field um how do you find someone that you don't know for example on a professional basis that you can have that true um care provider and patient or client relationship with so that's an added an added challenge for a lot of folks here as well. One of the things I did here is that even for psychologists, for therapists, for people who are working in this field, 
like you mentioned, they need care too. I heard again and again, you know, therapists need therapists too. Psychologists need psychologists too. And I think it really reflects that, um, that awareness that none of us can do this on our own, right? You need to have support. You need to have people who understand whether it's um, the, the support for kind of what you're going through in the moment, best practices on a professional level, and really that kind of commiseration that we really haven't had for about, you know, for, for a year with the, the work from home and all of the, the changes that are happening in our lives right now. But one of the things that jumped out to me too, I think, is that there is data from Statistics Canada that said that 69% of psychologists, so, social workers, and counsellors have said that their own mental health has worsened since March 2020. So again, we talk about this happening on a broader scale for Canadians. We know and we have the data as well to show that it's happening to with mental health workers and that they are certainly taking this very seriously as they continue to look for ways to, to move forward and navigate through this. And and they're dealing with the same pressures that, that everyone else is over and above what, what their, their job is, uh, you know, and, and trying to help others in situations like that. You know, I guess in the initial stages, as you mentioned in the piece, uh, lack of personal protective equipment, uh, you know, the uh, working environments, et cetera, like this, and the technology to, to be able to reach out uh, to, to potential clients in situations like this. It all adds up, and it, it's, it's a, a very, very problematic situation for them. Of course, yeah. And I mean, I think it's it certainly um, a lot of people can empathize with the fact that if, if you don't have personal protective equipment, and you don't have masks or the gear that you need to stay safe, that's that's going to add a, a significant mental mental strain to you as you're trying to do the work that you need to do. It's a cost factor as well. A lot of the grants I was hearing from these these workers that would cover businesses, restaurants, things like that aren't necessarily available to some of these small business owners uh, who are working in more of a clinical or healthcare uh, business. And so that's an added expense that they have to factor in too. Moving over to the the virtual care platforms, the security, the um, the questions around kind of how what is the best way to do this and manage all of the, the the changes and the increased workload here as well is a big part. And then of course there's the factor that they're still having to charge HST to their to their patients and their clients here. That's something that of course when you go to the hospital to receive care for a broken bone or something like that, you're not paying HST on 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 costs like that. Uh, but but counselors and therapists do still have to charge that to their their clients and their patients. So that was one of the issues that came up again and again. They they want to see change from the government or a willingness to expand insurance coverage. All of these things that speak to that issue of cost and lack of access that are going to be so important going forward. Well, this is one of the things that struck me, and I'm glad you brought that point up because it's one of the things I circled when I was reading the piece uh, that you put on the global page. Uh, one of the early announcements that the Prime Minister made, going back to last spring, uh, when he was talking about the CERB program and everything else like this, was was increased money for things like the, the child's help phone and things of that nature. And I thought, oh, good, they, they're identifying that, that mental health issues are going to be a problem here, so they're giving more money. But they're not. They did. They did nothing for the people that are providing the service. Uh, and 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 now these guys are left, like you say, high and dry from a financial standpoint. That that disconnect here can be really problematic. And and I'm sure that it's probably an engendered a feeling with a lot. Of people in the field, Amanda, to, to simply say, hey, what about us? Hey, did you forget about us? And the last thing you want to feel when you're already stressed out is that nobody's caring and nobody's paying attention to you. Yeah, I think that that's, that's certainly a, a big concern. We did, of course, as you mentioned there, see, see some funding for things like um, the, the, the care lines and the, the National yeah. Suicide Hotline as well that was set up this year. So we have seen action from the government on things like that. But of course, you think of the, the you know, when, when someone is calling or reaching out for help, those those are those work really well. Um, we've heard in terms of a, a first resource, a, a kind of clarifying point of where do I go next? How do I get the help that I need? 
But in terms of actually setting up that sustainable level of care, that regular access to, you know, whether it's weekly or monthly or what have you, that aspect is still really lacking for so many people. They might have that first point to, to kind of talk them down from a crisis moment. But when you get into actually preventing and treating the root causes here and addressing the things that are going to make this so systemic and an added problem for the healthcare system long term, that those resources really are, are not there and remain a really big barrier for people to access. Well, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on today, and I'm so glad you had the time for us today, is to is to bring this to people's attention uh, and to Parliament and, and to the Ontario government's attention as well, because there's got to be some help. Uh, another very telling statistic, by the way, from your piece uh, for our listeners, uh, according to the Canadian Mental Health Association, roughly 1.6 million Canadians reported an unmet mental health care need. That was before the pandemic. You've got to figure that those numbers are much larger now. Absolutely. And, and the, the number there that you see is, is most frequently in, in regards to accessing counseling. So again, it really speaks to that fact that that, lo- that longer term care, that, um, that, that continued uh, support that they need is not being met and it's getting worse. We did see as well in that, that, uh, that survey that that problem is worse in Ontario and BC. And we know, of course, that Ontario is being hit so hard during the pandemic here with the case numbers and the amount of, uh, the amount of impact this is having on people as well. And so certainly, this is going to be an ongoing issue going forward that, that really shows no signs, unfortunately, of going away. Well, especially in light of the fact that now we're already talking about possibly another lockdown coming up uh, because of some of the numbers here in Ontario. So uh, this is one of the unintended consequences, but certainly one that the the government needs to pay attention to. Uh, again, I'll direct our listeners to the Global News page to get this. It's called A Year in the Pandemic, Mental Health Workers Facing Burnout and Soaring Demands. Uh, great reporting on this, Amanda, as always. Thank you so much for the piece, and uh, thanks for taking some time for us today. Thank you for having me. Take care. Amanda Conley, of course, Global News Reporter. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's an interesting survey that was done uh, just a couple of days ago here in Canada. This is all because of the fallout of the the Harry and Meghan interview with Oprah that was a couple of weeks ago now. And uh, the reaction to it, the interview itself, I guess, sparked an awful lot of interest. But the government reaction, uh, the Buckingham Palace reaction to this has, has, I think, really kind of ripped the Band-Aid off an awful lot of very festering issues uh, that people were feeling about the monarchy. And a new poll now suggesting the majority of Canadians believe the British monarchy is out of date and Canada should get rid of it. Terry Pedwell reports. The poll was conducted by Leger and the Association for Canadian Studies after Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle were interviewed by American talk show host Oprah Winfrey. 53% of respondents say the British monarchy no longer has a place in Canada. Another one-third of respondents disagreed, saying Canada must preserve its monarchist heritage. Leger Executive Vice President Christian Bourke says more than half of Canadians today say the British monarchy is out of date, and this probably would not have been true a few weeks ago before the interview. Terry Pedro, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. Uh, I think Terry just hit it at the nail on the head there. There has always been a debate about the monarchy and whether or not we should still be a part of this and, and the Commonwealth for that matter too. But it was rather, I, I suppose, latent for the longest a while now because we've had other things on our minds like the pandemic and other things. But that interview, I think, just has really sparked this. Uh, Diane Francis wrote about this last week in the, uh, the National Post. Uh, her piece is called It's Time to Drop the Queen as Canada's Head of State. And she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Diane, hope you're doing well. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Yes, I am. I'm, I'm part Irish, which is my, probably part of the reason I don't want to <laughs> uh, As am I, William Patrick Kelly. I mean, you know where my heart is in situations oh my goodness, like this. Yes. And, to add, and add to that, Republicanism from Ireland 
I'm also born in the United States, and we got rid of the buggers too, didn't 50 years ago. So <laughs> that's where I'm coming from. All that being said, I think there's a lot to hear about the monarchy and the British traditions. And, you know, they've given given the world quite a, a number of good things, as well as rape and pill- raping and pillaging it to create their empire. Let's not forget that. But well, yeah. the point is that, that this, this bunch are so dysfunctional, they don't represent Canadian values, and I think they should go. You know, when I don't mean to, you know, draw the parallel between art and, and real life, but, uh, you know, with everybody who's watched The Crown, I think everybody's seen at least part of that anyway. Uh, they always said the corollary, well, you know, this is just fiction. It's not really this bad. It's worse. I mean, you know, these guys put the fun in dysfunctional. And, and, and when you see the way that they're responding, it, it's one thing what we heard from Harry and, 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 and uh, Meghan in the interview, but the, the Buckingham Palace reaction and the, and the reaction overseas in the U.K., I, I thought was disgusting, frankly. Well, you know, the minute that the interview was completed, the, the press in Britain, if you want to call them that, they're gutter gutter press, the tabloids in particular, but even the quality dailies, broadsheets, as we call them, are, you know, were sneering and snide, sarcastic, and the tabloids just viciously attacked them, which actually proved the point that they were making, and that was that life as a royal is impossible, particularly since if you're the royal that's being picked on because you're half black and American and given no protection by the palace, it's, it's grounds for leaving. So, you know, it was just so obvious. I thought the reaction in India was very interesting. I kind of surveyed the, uh, the Australians, of course, have been trying to get rid of the monarchy for a long time, and I think now mm-hmm. they will. They had a referendum in 95 that just barely lost, and this will just put it over the top. And their prime minister was very outspoken after the interview. But India was interesting. <laughs> India not keep the queen as head of state, but she's the head of the Commonwealth, and they're in the Commonwealth. The reason they didn't keep the head of state is because they became a republic after independence. But they're very, they're very you know, deferential, and they're very British in their attitude. Their biggest newspaper, the Hindustan, had a very simple headline. It was very polite, very Indian, very kind of British, but it really made the point almost better than anything. The question they asked in the headline was, why is Harry's son not a prince? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, I think it's offensive. I think it's offensive to anybody of color. And 70% of the people in the Commonwealth are people of color. I find it offensive. And I totally believe the couple. I totally was, believe she had, she had was, a bullseye on her back from the minute she came came in. Well, those of us who know history, though, Diane, uh, I think would understand that uh, the royal family doesn't like outsiders. Uh, and, and Diana was an outsider. Uh, and, and, you know, she, we all will know what happened to her. And, 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 and you hit the, the, the nail on the head with the piece that you wrote here. Harry saw this happen. He saw his mother being chased. He saw him, her mother being, you know, chased up and down the streets you know photographer photographers each and everywhere uh, the the stuff they were writing about here the pictures they were printing right and he, I, I can see now that he's an adult and thinking i don't want that for my wife i don't want that sort of crap that's going on i don't need to put up with this and he didn't i i give him credit for what they did i i give him 100 percent credit i completely believe them over over any protestations from the royal family furthermore what i mentioned in that piece is what really also graded me was the the kid glove treatment of Prince Andrew. 
yeah. I won't get into whether he's guilty or not of being a pedophile, but he hung out with one. <laughs> and he's refused to, to be interviewed by the FBI about allegations against him by a 17-year-old. So, you know, this guy was sort of sidelined gently. Some of his salary and titles were taken away, but he still remains titled. He still has a salary, and his daughters are still princesses. You know, I mean, what kind of uneven-handed treatment is that? This is a terrible family. I mean, these people are terrible. Well, and they're terrible to people that they don't like. And, and you know, as you say, Meghan Markle was, I think, targeted the minute she got in, especially by the media, uh, but even by members of the family. And, and again, I, I've seen some of the stories, as you have, I'm sure, Diane, to say, well, like, it's not really the queen. It's the people around her that are doing this. Well, whether that's the case or not, uh, you know, it's happening. And it's happening once again. And this is her grandson. And, you know, it, it's what it did was it brought up a lot of very unpleasant memories about her, uh, Harry's mother. Uh, the way in which she died, the way she was treated after she finally separated from Charles and got divorced from Charles. And, and actually, I guess was, you know, all of these things become part of this. Uh, the, the fact that the Queen didn't even acknowledge Diana's death for a number of days, uh, it, this all comes right back. And it just, I think this feeds this fire right now to say, look, at this, this is a family that we just can't respect. Well, yes. And, you know, to quote Harry Truman, the former president, the late president of the United States, the buck stops with the queen. She may seem like a nice little old lady, but the buck stops with her. And all the dysfunction beneath her is her fault, and she's responsible for it. I mean, she's saying what she's supposed to be saying, you know, that, that we always love them, yada, 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 yada. Uh, and, and whoever crafted the response, of course, say, you know, that we may have different, you know, memories of how things happened. They happened. I mean, the the big takeaway, the one that, that I think a lot of people are doing, even if they haven't seen the interview, they've seen that clip, uh, where somebody in, in the royal family was asking, you know, how dark is the baby going to be? And th th this was all about color. This was all about racism. Of course it was. And, and that's... that's uh... No, I mean, I can, that's completely plausible. And, of course, what they've done and what Harry's done uh, is, is, I think, completely destroy the credibility of royals until they fess up who it was asked that question. And we know there's two suspects. It's Charles or it's William. And both of them are supposed to become, you know, the king of England, and that completely disqualifies them in my, in my, in my view. And you, you know it was one of those. And you just don't ask your child that question. You just don't, unless you want to, you know, get them to, uh, to, this was before maybe he even married her, uh, and before she got pregnant. This is a question a parent asks to discourage their child from marrying someone of mixed race. That's exactly what that is. Yeah, as you watch this unfold, and this happened even before, I guess, uh, Harry and, and Megan decided to go over to North America and eventually to Los Angeles, uh, when you have two kids in a family, how often have you seen this? Like one child acts just like one parent, the other just like the other. Uh, and William is a cutoff Charles Bly. I mean, he's he's a, a ringer for for his father. You know, just kind of you know he's 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 consumed by the role that he has to play here, and it, it's it's all role playing. And uh, it doesn't seem to have much of, in the way of personal character. You know, he's done what he's supposed to do uh, to maintain that image. Harry was just like his mother. I respect the office, but I'm going to be me, and I'm going to do my own thing. And that's what he did. I mean, remember young Harry? He was a pain in the ass all the 
stuff that he was doing. But, you know, he grew up. He did two tours in Afghanistan. And, I mean, combat missions. He didn't just stand there in the backward. Uh, he's He basically was the guy that, that invented the Invictus Games for, you know, people that, that were basically left behind after they'd served in Afghanistan and lost limbs. Uh, this is a guy who's really carved a whole niche for himself and an old life for himself. Uh, and And he's not getting any respect at all from his family for that. I find that troubling. Well, I think it's it's too bad. Uh, I think, you know, families do have differences. I mean, I see William as the dutiful firstborn uh, who, you know, does everything he's told by his parents and wants to please them. And then Harry is the younger kid who probably was given a lot more freedom to explore and do his own thing and didn't have the burden of being, you know, dutiful all the time. And so he, he went his own way. But as you point out, this is not a wayward guy. I mean, this is a decent person who may have done some prankish, silly things, but basically is a solid citizen. And uh, Meghan Markle is, is a remarkable woman who dragged her, who was raised by a single-parent mother with an, probably an alcoholic, crazy father who didn't do much and, you know, became a successful actress and, and professional woman. And so, you know, I mean, I, I really wish them well, and I think that they finally cut the, cut the whole thing away from them, and now they can embark on whatever they want to do. And I think they'll do very well. They're going to concentrate on mental health and racist issues, and he's going to continue, I hope, to be involved in Invictus and in other good causes. But you... The juxtaposition of, of he and, and Prince Andrew. Uh, again, here's a guy who's really not in line for the throne, so he was kind of off doing his own thing, and we see the kind of trouble that he got into. And this, the, the Epstein thing is only the latest in a whole lot of things that he's been controversial about. Harry took a different tact, and he made something of himself and did something. And he, they, the classic situation of what his mother wanted to do, I'm going to give back. Uh, and and they, the one they embrace, the other they seem to shun. And I, I, I just don't understand the rationale there. Well, it's unacceptable. It's just yeah. unacceptable. And I think that it's a blemish on, on, on any country who has her as the head of state. And it certainly would never want Charles to be the king of Canada. That is appalling. Uh. No, I, no, I've got no use for the guy. It, that bothers me. I mean, I don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about the royal family, but this guy just rankles me the wrong way. I mean, he's, he, he messed Diana up. I mean, we all know what happened with that marriage. It was never a marriage. And that one line from Diana's now famous interview with the BBC that there were three people in that marriage uh, tells me all I need to know about Charles and, and the family and the way that they treated her. But you talked about... Yeah, he was a spoiled brat who wanted his own way, and when he mommy forced him to marry a nice girl, he abused her, mistreated her, neglected her, and carried on committing adultery with a woman who was also committing adultery. I mean, this is the moral code of a, a gutter snipe. You know, this, these are the things that, that rankle me. And, and so, I mean, they can live their lives the way they want. I don't go around disparag making disparaging remarks about people just because they're famous. But when those people, their picture, her portrait is in courtrooms in Canada, or, you know, she's invoked in, in speeches and anthems in Canada. I don't want that to happen. I want it to stop. We should have a referendum. Diane, why is it, though, quite aside from the treatment they get from the, the, the family and, and Buckingham Palace, why is the British media uh, so reticent to, to, to criticize the Crown, but at the same time, punish anybody that the, the Crown doesn't like? Basically, it's, it's like they release the hounds on them. Yeah, it's, it, I, I've done a lot of thinking about this. I've 
been to Britain many times. I was married to an English person for a long time. I know that culture. I know that group. This is what this is how I boy, and I'm a journalist, and I know that 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 uh, Fleet Street. I mean, it's awful. Um, you know what, what it is that Fleet Street is the shaming and class conscious mechanism of British society. Step out of line, they're going to shame you. They're going to scold you. They're going to scandalize you. They're going to they're going to tut tut you to death if they can. And that's what they're doing. They're actually a mechanism that that society, with its huge judgmental system, it's it's based on shame and the caste, the class system. It's actually a mechanism for that society's behavior, and that's why it's the worst press on the planet. Very judgmental, very class conscious, and and ruthless. It's a, a great piece. I think it's still up on the National Post webpage, by the way, if you want to have a look at this. Uh, Diane Francis, time to drop the Queen as Canada's head of state. Diane, as always, thank you so much for the time. Great talking with you again. Stay well. No, you're welcome. Anytime. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.